Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is June 22nd, 2022, and we are ready to begin our worship service. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have this evening. We thank you for those who are here, and we pray for those who are not. And in particular, we're talking about Misty, who requested prayer for this evening. But she was not feeling well. Father, you know her situation, and we pray for uh, whatever is uh, distressing her. Also, Father, we pray for the others in our group that are not well. Dave's daughter, we got Dwight's ex-wife, we have um, others uh, that are may not be coming to my mind, but I'm sure they're uh, you know the hearts of all of us, so Father, give us the comfort of knowing that this is in your care and that whatever concerns or worries we have about these things will subside because we have put those on you. So we, we ask also as we begin our study that you will give us wisdom <clears throat> so that we can understand, especially the lesson that is before us. It is pivotal. So we, we ask for wisdom and knowledge as we approach these verses. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we Amen. we are in Romans chapter uh, 11 and we're looking at verse 11 and this is our second swing at it so this will be uh, second week I think last week we ran out of time we didn't really have enough time to finish the verse but we're, we're going to finish it today God willing and there's definitely it's pivotal now you may not think oh well why is it we've been on the same train or track why is it so pivotal and I just want to preference what we're going to do today by saying that these verses, many in Christian circles have taken these verses to say that uh, you can lose your salvation. So from our standpoint, what we've covered so far is pretty clear that we're not talking about salvation. So. Uh, I wouldn't say we're not talking about it at all. However, as you will see in these developing verses, the subject is not uh, the fact that you can lose your salvation. We're going to discuss some of the verses that do sound uh, that God is not, uh, you know, he's serious about whatever he's talking about because he tells us, watch out. Because just like Israel was unfaithful and they were cut off, you can be cut off too. So we're going to understand what that means and how we, we should understand that. And <clears throat> if you didn't have an understanding of that already, it's going to be good because... And I don't know whether we're going to fully develop that today, but uh, we're going to at least pivot toward that direction. This is the pivoting point. And um, if you already understood what these verses meant, that's good. That's good. 
But if not, then this will also be a place where you can at least address the concerns of those who have used these verses to, uh, to preach that you can lose your salvation. And uh, that is not the case. <clears throat> in fact, all of my searching in the Bible, uh, I have not found a verse that would contradict that salvation is a free gift given in grace. It is not of ourselves. Gift of God, not of works. None of those scriptures have been uh, have been overturned in my mind. Uh, it is all grace. So, you know, it might be good to, and, and this is, we're getting ready to get started here. I know time will be fleeting here. But if someone says they can lose their salvation, I would ask, one of the questions I would ask would be, when the Bible says that salvation is a free gift, it's a gift given in grace, it is not of ourselves. It's, what, what, is, what are we thinking that means? When it says it's free, what, what don't we have to bring if it's free? That would be the question to ask them. It's free. What, if we were going to pay for it, what would we use to pay for it? Ask that question of them. Let them answer. Now, if they say money, <laughs> then I think that would be silly. How are we going to... We couldn't be paying money for salvation. When it says it's free, it's not about money. But what is it about? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 clearly tells us it's a free gift. It's a gift given in grace. It's not of ourselves. And what don't we have to bring? Works. Works. They are not necessary for salvation. Why? Because God has already figured it out and paid it all. That's something to glory in. Not to chip away at. Not to undermine. But something that we should say glory to God. Praise the Lord for giving us this so great salvation, this priceless gift. We could never do it ourselves anyway. So anyway, that's just a thought. Okay, uh, back to uh, our notes. Uh, this is Romans 11, 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because their transgression, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Israel has a special calling before God. While they are not operational now, God fully expects them to take their place in human history again. We could conclude from some of the promises to this nation that he never doubted them. God did accomplish many of his objectives through, his, through this nation, even in their declining state. As Isaiah says, quote, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a dry ground, unquote, Isaiah 53, chapter, uh, verse 2. We must keep in mind that Israel's purpose 
is God's purpose. Certainly, God will not fail at his divine purposes. So when we, we think about this, we, we always have to go back to the thought that if Israel ultimately fails, God ultimately fails. So we have to always think about, yes, they failed. Yes, but it's not over for them. God is not through with Israel. And this chapter, even though it deals frankly with Israel, uh, it definitely, most assuredly, says that Israel has a future. I don't know how anyone could get around that, how they could try to replace Israel with the church, or, or, or all sorts of things that they say could happen as a result of Israel's failures. Well, one thing we have to say is that God will cause them to succeed, and he, sh he shows us how in this, in this chapter. So, um, let's get to it. I think we covered all the way down to point number three. Point number one was, again, I ask. Point number two, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Paul answers that for us. Not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, it's, if, if we could just close the book and we're done after that statement, not at all. And they did stumble quite a bit. Horribly, you must say. But as I was saying, point C, not at all. Of course, the answer to this question is right here. But for some, it does not answer, but only raises more questions. Uh, my reading of this, is it real is, is Are they beyond recovery? Is, is it over for them? I think that's answered here. Even though Paul goes into greater detail, that question is certainly uh, not at all. Point D, the church is not Israel. They are a nation before God, uh, and they clearly have a different purpose. That's Israel. The church is not a nation. The church has people in every nation. And there is no particular nation that we, as the church, would gravitate toward in our service in this world. We are placed here by God, and I think we are placed strategically. Now, he didn't just randomly say, oh, like throwing out a deck of cards and, and, and dealing them out wherever they go. He placed us here on purpose. We're, we happen to be here, but there are believers in other countries, and uh, that's where God put them. There is no migration to the United States. Uh, they, they are supposed to serve right where God placed them. You know, come to salvation. They are, are to grow in grace and in knowledge. And they are to come to the full knowledge of the truth. And they are supposed to evangelize and teach and bring people to the knowledge of the truth right where they are. So anyway, let's continue to point number three. Rather... Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. We, we need to talk about that. So I know we, we covered some of this already, so I'm going to move quickly. Rather, in other words, 
no, Israel is not beyond recovery. And there are other ways to understand their failure. So when he says, no, not at all, they certainly haven't gone beyond recovery. And then uh, he says, rather, and he's going to tell us some good that has come out of what Israel's failure was. And there are good things, even though, yeah, they failed, they stumbled, but some good is, is, is in this, not just failure. Point B, because of their transgression, Israel's stumbling, uh, and to include the greatest blunder in rejecting and crucifying their Messiah here, referred to as transgression. And that's John 1.11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Point C. One aspect of Israel's call was to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Now the nation itself needed salvation. Think about the reversal there. Right? How ironic is that? The fact that Israel was supposed to go out and give the, get the gospel to the nations, and yet they are the ones that needed evangelizing. Romans 10.1 My prayer to God is that uh, Israel will be saved, Paul says. Paul, can you imagine? We are evangelizing the Gentiles, or the Gentiles, the Jews. So if anything, you would think that those Jews would be the ones with their rich culture of God that would be coming to us and telling us about the Messiah. But the reverse, that tells you they are still in a stumbling place right now. Their eyes are darkened. They can't see. Their hearts are hardened. All those scriptures we went through and we got a chance to see not only what was on the outside of Israel, but what is on the inside as well. Point C. One aspect of Israel's call was to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Now the nation itself needed salvation. I think I might have covered that. Let's keep going. D, the responsibility uh, of bringing Christ, who is the light of the world, to the world has fallen to the church. Note, this does not make the church Israel. This is an important point. So, now here, I have to say, as we're getting ready to cover these verses that are important and pivotal, or points, rather, we have to note that some, in some Christians' theology, salvation is the ultimate goal. They don't have a system where they're saved by grace and they're born again and then they learn and they grow and they understand what God's plan is for their lives and then they that's that's not a part of how uh, some theologies work so what they look at is salvation is the ultimate goal in this in the human life all salvation uh, and no calling and spiritual growth or rewards or all those things are scantily spoken of. Salvation is their number one achievement in life. If they can just make it in, they could just be saved. That, that's all they want. But just remember, salvation is free. So what do we see here? This is the same thing 
Israel failed. This is exactly where they failed at. This one point, which was making uh, salvation, which is the spiritual adjustment to God, making that something that they achieve by keeping the law, by doing the works that God required of them in their calling. Somehow they thought, well, if I do these works, then God will certainly accept me. He can skip over the spiritual dynamics of what the relationship is because he sees me doing what uh, is important to him. And that's a wrong thinking. Again, they were putting the cart before the horse. They were trying to be, uh, you know, spiritually uh, motivated when they were spiritually dead. Uh, just like Nicodemus, he told Christ told him, he says, "Yeah, I understand you're of the Sanhedrin. I know you, you're somebody in Israel, but let me tell you, you must be born again." Can you imagine? I would love to have been there to hear Christ tell that man, and the look on his face, and and how he quickly talked about, "What do you mean, born again? You mean you you telling me, you know, go back into my mother's womb?" Uh, unbelievable. This man was probably dressed in fine robes. He had probably the best of everything. He was a rich person. He's in the Sanhedrin. He was in the upper class. And yet, he was spiritually dead. And Christ told him straight. So, so this is, I mean, he's a leader now, a teacher in Israel. And this is the condition of their heart. Obviously, Nicodemus, he, he at least came to Christ, so we can't fault him for that. But that responsibility now has moved. The fact that God has his representative people in the world. Now, prior to this, it was Israel. And I gave you the analogy of the woman at the well. When she finally understood that Jesus was a prophet, she wanted to settle that issue. Well, which, where should we worship that? This mountain or the mountain you Jews say we should worship? Jerusalem or Garrison? Which one? And Jesus said, you, you do not know what you're talking about. Salvation is of the Jews. Yes, if you want to know what salvation is, you've got to go to the Jews, not to the Samaritans. Jesus told her straight. And she could have got offended by that. But she didn't. She kept listening. And you know what the result was? She got saved when it was all over, when it was said and done. Not only her, but many people in the town came, came out and talked to Jesus. At the end of that, in, in Roman uh, John chapter 4, she said, uh, the people in the town said, we don't believe anymore because of what the woman said. We believe because we heard him and we believe because of his words. They looked the Messiah in the face and they believed. Can you imagine that? Uh, so it's of the Jews. But guess what? Right now, you can go to any Jewish temple. You could try going to Israel or wherever you want to go. Guess what? You're not going to get the gospel from that Jewish leadership that's in place. You're not. You know why? Not only are they disobedient to God at this point, as we're going to find out later in the chapter, it says, 
As for now, they are enemies for your sake. Now here, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies. Now, that is to say they don't believe the gospel. They're the ones who put Christ on the cross. So, that responsibility that Israel had is now the church's responsibility. Now, just like Israel, uh, could they, I, I should ask the question, can they fall? Have they fallen beyond recovery? Have they? Not at all. So even, and now Israel was cut off. Have they fallen beyond recovery? Not at all. Let me just see. I do hear some background noise. Uh, maybe put your phone on mute. I can help you. Give me a, give me a second. All right. So, yeah, there you go. Thank you, Dave. Welcome. So, so no, it, Israel did not fall beyond recovery, even though they crucified the Lord. What do you think about the church? The church now has this responsibility. Now, we already talked about it from the standpoint of um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says he has given us this ministry, that we are ambassadors for Christ. And our job is to tell people, to go out literally and tell people to be reconciled to God. That's our job. It's a ministry that has been given to us. That ministry belonged to Israel. Now, don't get too high and mighty. Because if we don't fulfill the ministry God has given us, uh, he, he, will, he will discipline us like he disciplined Israel. But will they fall beyond recovery? Will the church fall beyond recovery? Absolutely not. Not at all. We're not talking, this is not a matter of salvation. It is a matter of calling. And if you succeed, now when it comes to the church, everybody in the church is saved. But that's not, that wasn't true of Israel. Israel was a mixed multitude. Some were saved, very few actually. And the majority of them were not. And, and especially the leadership of Israel was not saved. So that is what led out in the nation. And of course, uh, when it came to missionary work, there was none. It was only separation and exclusion from all Gentiles. So this, so this responsibility that Israel had. Now God is always seeking to have representation on earth, especially when it comes to the gospel. He is He's always going to have it. So you, you will see that even before there was a, such a thing as Israel. God worked through Gentile families to continue to preach the gospel in the world until he decided, okay, it was time for him to bring forward the nation, Israel. That would be a priest nation to all the other nations. And we covered some of this last week, so we're not going to go retrace all of our steps. So I'm looking at point E now. Okay, point E uh, in our notes, 3E. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So that's the phrase that we're looking at. Rather, because of their transgression, because they were disobedient, because they stumbled, because they failed, 
salvation has come to the Gentiles. See what that means. That means the responsibility of partnering with God for this purpose of bringing the gospel to the world. Right? That's what salvation has come to the Gentiles means. And we covered that in 5.17-21 through 21 where it says we're ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. That's the title that we have. So we don't have Israel. God didn't say, I'm going to now call you Israel. No, but the very thing that Israel was supposed to bring, the church is now bringing to the world, to all nations. And God, as we were talking about, God has a witness in every nation. Imagine that. And that is the church. Now, just as Israel had other responsibilities other than giving the gospel, we already named some about bringing Christ into the world, so the church has other responsibilities. Our main goal is not just to evangelize. That's only part of it. If it's just to evangelize, then we're, all we're doing is the same calling Israel had. But our calling, we're not of this world. We have been given information that was hidden in God. And that's not the gospel. The gospel was never hidden. The part that we are fulfilling, the call that we have before God, when it comes to salvation has come to the Gentiles, is about us taking the role and being ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. It's not the deep things of God that we also have come as a part of our uh, understanding face-to-face -face with. God has revealed these things to us. He did not reveal them to Israel. He could have, but he didn't. These things don't pertain to them. They pertain, they pertain to us. Point F. Israel was a nation. The church is not a nation, but has representatives in every nation. Uh, I think we covered this. Israel. The church is not Jewish and under the Mosaic law, even though some former Jews are a part of it. So it doesn't matter. The, the church started out primarily Jewish. We should note that. But what we know is that if any man is in Christ, if anybody is in Christ, those distinctions have passed away. That's part of what it says, you know, if any man is in Christ, the new creation has come. Old things have lost their power. So that person was a Jew, he's no longer a Jew. That person was a Gentile, he's no longer a Gentile. He's now a new creation in Christ. So even if the church was primarily Jewish, which it was, and a person could say, well, there's nothing but Jews in this church. If they're looking on, right, they're looking on. There's nothing but Jews in this church. But really, they're missing the point. All they're looking at is the, the, ostent, the just what is ab what you're able to see ostensibly. They're not looking at um, what is on the inside of the of what makes up the church. So unfortunately, that 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 would be wrong. So even though the church was Jewish, and then the Gentiles, the Gentiles didn't really come along until Acts chapter ten, and then they were united by the baptism of the Spirit, and then the Samaritans in Acts chapter seven and eight. 
They were united by the baptism of the Spirit. So God is unifying the church. And remember, the nature of the church is not Jewish or Gentile. And even if primarily Gentiles uh, are having it. Now, why does he say salvation has come to the Gentiles? And that's point H. Let's look at that. Paul uses the term Gentiles here to represent the new body of Christ, the church. And so why does he use Gentiles? Because he's emphasizing that we're not talking about a Jewish nation here. We're talking about Gentiles. It is, so if we're not talking Jewish, then it means it's Gentile. So it doesn't mean that the church is primarily Gentile. It just means that it's not Jewish. It's, that it's not the nation Israel, which had been the standard for 1,400 years up to this point. So he uses the term Gentiles to represent the church. How do I know he's talking about the church? Because when he says he too is saved and he was, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, where does he saved into? When Paul is saved, he's, he's in a member. He's a body in the body of Christ, a new creation. He understands that. So Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 helps us understand this a little better. Here it is. Ephesians 2.11. Let's look at it. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves circumcision. All right, that's Jews, Gentiles, which is done by the body, uh, in the body by human hands. That's what he's referring to. Remember, verse 12, that at the time... You were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants and the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So when he says this in two, it sounds pretty dire. But what he's trying to say is Gentiles did not have a call like Israel did. Israel had the call. Now if you go to Romans 9, this is, this is where Paul details. 9, here he goes. Verse 4, he says, The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them, it's traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So when Paul sees Jewish, and we should know that there were two Jewish nations. They broke out. Two Jewish nations came out of Israel. We say Israel, but there were two Jewish. It was Judah, there's one in Judah, and then there was Israel. It was the southern and the northern kingdom. So just to note, so it is not a Jewish nation that is in play here, which is why he says, go back to where we were in Ephesians 2. Just wanted to show you Paul's thinking there. So back to Ephesians 2. So when he says, verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, foreigners from the covenants of the promise, and without hope and without God in the world. So without hope means they didn't have a calling. Like right now, we have a hope. Our hope, you could say, well, we hope to get saved, right? But that's not it. We have a hope, an eternal hope, a heavenly hope. That's what he's referring to, a calling, a special calling. We did not have that as Gentiles. 
But Israel had a special calling. We didn't. That's what he's saying in, in Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once, who were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So all we did is through salvation, God has given us this new hope. We didn't have to earn it. It was given to us freely. All we did was believe in Christ. And that's how Ephesians says, you were included in Christ when you heard the the message, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. That's Ephesians 1.13. So uh, then uh, verse 14 here, Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace. Now here, this is good to know here. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So when he is our peace, what he's saying is, um, it's not that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and all that. He's talking about between the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, right? That that's supposed to be what he, you know, how well, there's not supposed to be animosity and and hostility between the two groups, right? Um, so he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. We talked a lot about one on Sunday, and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, what's that? What is that dividing wall of hostility? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Now it's just one new man out of the two, thus making peace. See, the peace is between these two groups it's not necessarily, you know, him saying he's, you know, I know how people see peace. I'm just saying contextually it is something else. 2.16, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through, G through the cross, right, by which he put to death their hostility. Now, it's supposed to be put to death. Christ did it. There should be no hostility, but there is. Why? Because people who may be saved, are exclusive. Even in the first century, Paul had to write this because Jews hated Gentiles. They called them names. Uh, Gentiles hated the Jews right back. I mean, it was just hostility between the groups. Well, God did away with that in Christ. And in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. I don't care if they're Jewish brothers. I don't care what race. I don't care if they're barbarian, if they're crude, if they're whatever there is. How about the, whatever political views they have? If they're believers in Christ, then God has put to death that hostility between us. Now, it is up to us to learn to experience those things in time by renewing our minds with what God has given us as truth about ourselves. Verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peach, peach, peace to those who were near, the Jews. Even though the Jews were near, didn't mean they were saved, but they were closer than the Gentiles were because they got the law, they had the principles of God, they, they had salvation, well, they were, at least they had the principles of it. They weren't practicing it. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, 
that's no more for us, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So we are now God's instrument on the earth, members together in one body with, with Jews. And, and so when we're in this one body, we have to say former Jews, former Gentiles. Back to our notes. So that's important. This is an important point. Why? Because people think that the church replaces Israel. Well, there is some point to that. The church has replaced Israel when it comes to this point, which is giving the gospel, being ambassadors of the gospel. But the church is, has its own unique and special purpose. We are not of this world. That is clear. We are not under the law. We are not Israel. We're not a nation. But what this point is where people confuse the fact that the church is somehow now Israel. Because remember, the point was those people, all they see in life, they don't see about any calling or anything. All they see, the goal in life is salvation. Nothing else. So when they look at these verses, they don't see that it's about calling. When it says salvation has come to the Gentiles, well, Gentiles were being saved before Israel even came to the scene. Abraham was a Gentile. He was saved when he was saved. There were lots of Gentiles that were saved prior to Israel becoming a nation. It's not about salvation coming to the Gentiles. It's about the responsibility of God's instrument, his, his hands and feet on the earth to bring as a witness his salvation. That's what it's about. It's not about uh, that now the Gentiles have salvation now. We can be saved. Well, we didn't have salvation before. Sure we did. Sure we did. It's not about salvation. Okay, let's keep going. And we got this point number four. Why, what all of this happened to make Israel envious. So Paul is suggesting through the ministry of the Spirit that it's not all bad. We saw Israel's failure, right? Israel didn't fail because of the church. Israel failed on their own. And, and when they failed, that failure made Israel envious of the church. God did signs and wonders and miracles in the church, undeniably that he was headed a to a certain place, a direction. God had shifted. Remember, the dispensations had changed. He had shifted from Israel to the church. It was evident. It was plain. It was clear. Uh, God testified to it by various signs and wonders and miracles given by the Holy Spirit. That's Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. And, and this was public. It was not private. God didn't do it in a cave somewhere and say, okay, now... Uh, I'm doing this, but uh, you, you, now you got to go out and tell the world. No, he did it in the open. People saw the, the signs. They saw the miracles. They saw the things that, were, that happened through these men who were the foundation of the church. So, so it was very clear. It was undeniable. Uh, overwhelming, let's just say. So it's to make Israel envious. Let's, let's dig in a little bit to these points. First one is they certainly are envious. 
and even accuse God of foul play. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about envious. They wanted, they were trying to tell God what his plan was. They were saying to God, even in, he, well, our first one we could look at is right here in Romans 11. Right? I, this, this question Paul is trying to put to bed. I ask then, verse 1, did God reject his people? By no means. But where would he get the idea of that? Why would he say that? It is because Israel has been complaining to God that this is, they're the ones, you can't switch from uh, Israel to the church. You can't change dispensations. No, uh, we reject that. And if you do that, then you are re rejecting us. They also, uh, if you go back to Romans 8, this is uh, 31 through 34. Uh, here, let's look at it. We already read this, but uh, what then? And this comes right on the heels of those two famous verses. For those, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined he, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of many, among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? What does Israel say in response to this? They reject it. They, they're against it. If God is for us, who can be against us? God did this. Right? If, certainly if God did it, then obviously it's okay with God if he did that. And then he explains he, he, he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Right? And then... Again, you have to ask the question, why was Paul asking this? Because the Jews were bringing a charge. They were saying, we're violating the Mosaic law. How are you going to let Gentiles in? Well, it's a new Bible. They're not under the law. God destroyed the barrier, the wall that divided us. He did that in the church. So then, who, verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? Huh? Then the church condemned. I mean, they're saying that this is a condemned organization. God, you, you can't do this. And, th and then again in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? They would love to do that, but it's impossible. So these are verses that are showing you contextually why we're at the place we are. I mean, it, they, they were God's chosen people, and they're going to be again. So God is really patient with them. You have to say this. He is. I mean, if it was any of us, we'd have cut them off while they were right in the middle of their speaking. We would have shut their mouths because we don't want to hear that they have anything to say, especially when they've been resisting the Holy Spirit all those years, just like their forefathers did. So they were doing. They weren't even believing in the Messiah. They're the ones that put the Messiah on the cross. We could go on and on uh, but what we see is that God is patient. He's long-suffering when it comes to Israel. Not only does he explain it, but he gives them detailed information to help them through it so that they can become a part of this wonderful calling that we call the church. Uh, this, this, is, this is an amazing thing. Even Paul is saying, I'm, I was Israel. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm certainly in the church now i've joined and the, i've answered the call 
So point B, the jealousy is that the church has some of the responsibility Israel had. Notice, it's some of the responsibility. It doesn't make Israel and the church synonymous because we have the responsibility of bringing the good news to those who are lost. It will remind them of their failure and forfeiture of God's blessing temporarily. Why temporarily? Because they're going to be back in action again. Right now, they're, it is as though they're sleeping. It's like they are turned off to God. Their hearts are hard. Uh, their failure, though, will be turned, and they will be those who valiantly, who triumphantly work with God. They will be that nation among all these unbelieving nations, and they will preach the everlasting gospel to, to the ends of the earth. So this is going to happen. It will happen. But right now, they're jealous. And what they should be doing is what the church is busy doing, I hope. I can't evaluate whether the church is failing. I just want to say that our church, we want to make sure that we preach the gospel, that we are faithful in telling people the good news about grace and the offer of the gift of God through of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our job. We can't say, oh, the church is not doing it. We have to let God say that. He's the one who's evaluating us. So, um, yeah, they're jealous. I can see their jealousy. And, and part of their jealousy, their jealousy is the hatred. You bring up Jesus to Jewish people, and there's something in them that just reacts to that. I'm talking about Jewish unbelievers, that is. They, they, they know this is their history. They're supposed to understand Messiah, but here Gentiles have taken this thing and run with it and left them in, in the darkness. So, yeah, they're jealous. They may never tell you they're jealous. But if Israel really understood their call, then they would understand why. That there's this animosity in them when the name of Jesus is mentioned. So the jealousy is there. Point C, God's intention is not to destroy Israel, but, quote, in hope in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy so and so save some of them. That's that's verse 14. We're not there yet, but I thought it was appropriate to at least include the thought of how it ends, what what is on our heart. Remember, we when we come to people, we're not angry, we're not bitter. We know that they were born with sin natures. Whatever sins they got, do they matter? No. Whatever sins Christ paid for them, and they can receive the righteousness of God and begin the process of growing in grace. So we're, we're wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We don't have any animosity, no bitterness in our heart. Not supposed to, toward Israel, even though they might towards us. So it, it's it, our responsibility. And it is to hopefully bring them to salvation. If you are, if you ever encounter any Jewish people, that's okay. 
they want to come to learn about the truth, about what we're talking about, about who Jesus Christ is and why we believe what we believe, then we're here for them. That it's like Paul says, that rouse them to jealousy so that they may, some of them may be saved. Because right now, they're lost. And we're talking the majority of them. Not all of them, because Paul himself was a Jew. So obviously he knows he's not talking about the whole, uh, the whole of Israel, but some of them, the majority of them. Point D, the church has this responsibility on a temporary basis. Now I say temporary because at some point we're going to be pulled out of here. It's called the rapture. God's going to take the church out. We're no longer going to be in the world. We're going to begin a new role, a heavenly role. God's going to take us home where we belong, where he, we were destined before time began. So we have to say that our time on this earth is, is, is a temporary. I mean, tomorrow God could, could catch us out of here. We could be gone. And that's it. I'm not just me, every one of us. I'm not talking about through death. I'm talking about through the rapture. He says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout and with the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him, with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So just think about that. That can happen anytime. We're, we're operating not on our timetable, but on God's. He'll t when, it's, when it's time then that's, those things will happen, just as I just quoted. But we'll hand it back to Israel. We'll hand this responsibility back to Israel when they are removed through the rapture. And that's the church. When the church is removed through the rapture, we will hand it all back to Israel. That's it. And we quoted 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 16. Point E, we're moving forward. To note... This is not the only responsibility of the church. Just like Israel, that wasn't their only responsibility. We are those many sons and daughters uniquely conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we already read Romans 8 and 29. I mean, we are unique, the church. God, who is so unique that this is the eternal purpose of the Father to bring many sons into glory. And that we, the church, would be those sons and satisfy something that God desired before the creation of the universe. He desired us. This is the highest calling there is. And I'm not trying to compare ourselves to Israel in any way. I'm just trying to let you know that what God has done in the church far exceeds any calling, angelic or human, God has done for the church. What God wanted was children. He wanted us. And the fellowship, the, the richness, the, the unsearchable wealth, the, tr the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ, all will belong to us as inheritance. So we are unique. This is God's ideal. With all the, all the surrounding component parts that support 
what we are, are supportive, are in support of what we are and God's eternal purpose. When you read Romans, the rest of Romans 8, where it talks about uh, the earth is in travail, you know, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And when we are revealed, then it will cause a cataclysmic change in the entire universe. The universe, not just some place in some town and some dusty road, some old church. When God is finished with us and he, re he brings us out, the universe will be affected. Read it in Romans 8 for yourself. Read what God has to say about it. It's, it's I don't have any words to, to elevate this to any higher place than Romans 8 already took it. Just read those verses. Read them slowly. Soak it all in. It's hard to understand that he's talking about us. As feeble and weak as we are, as absent-minded and and frail as we are that's who he's talking about we're going to have that effect on all things all things are yours Paul says in, in another place so that bringing those sons and daughters into glory we, we can't I mean well this is what our true calling is and this is what God's eternal purpose is all of the things around that are supportive of that purpose God didn't just lift Israel up and say there's just two purposes no the whole purpose was to bring many sons into glory Israel is a component part of that this is what God wanted from eternity past this is what he wanted before he created all things when it says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by Him. Without Him, there was not one thing made that has been made. But before they did that creation, before Christ created all things, the plan of what prompted Him, what was the motivation for the members of the Trinity, was to bring us on the scene. So God hid this plan in his heart until he began to reveal it after Pentecost. Well, he started with those disciples, those Jewish disciples, 11 of them. Christ began to reveal this information to them. So this is our heritage. He says we have an inheritance that is uncorrupted, undefiled, and the reserve in the heavens for us. So these are, the, the church has, I mean, if we just, just say, oh, well, we, we should be, our whole purpose should be just a salvation purpose. Our whole, no, you can't neglect your calling. You can't just turn around and say, okay, God, forget about all that calling stuff. All I'm going to do is go out so I can save people. You, you should do that, but not neglect the renewing of your mind. That one day, you're going to have to answer to, the, to, to Jesus Christ for the things done while in the body. And he's evaluating you, not just on whether you gave the gospel, but did you grow in grace? Did you understand your calling? Were you a herald of the new 
message that was hidden from ages and past generations, where you were herald of that. So this is coming. So this, these verses are pivotal in that, yeah, yeah, we, we need to understand that we do have this responsibility. And like I said, it's is codified in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved. That's one, that's our first responsibility. And to come to the deep knowledge of the truth. Second responsibility. We have those two responsibilities. And this is while we're in the world. Well, that it's only temporary that we are ambassadors of the gospel. That's temporary because we're going to leave here. And then we're going to hand it back to Israel. But that other responsibility that we have to come to know who we are in Christ, who we are as those who are sons and daughters conformed to the very image of his son, well, that will last throughout eternity because that's who we are. So point F, we're going to get to our Q&A. Point F, as, as is our unique calling, so also is our rich inheritance. And that's Ephesians 1. Let's read about it real quick. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. So it says, in 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as his mighty strength when he exerted, he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and, pointed, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So these verses go way beyond what our responsibility of salvation is. It goes to what God's, what our eternal role is before God. Point G, we are a heavenly people. And as our Lord says, quote, they are not of this, of the world, even as I am not of it. That's John 17 and 16. So we're going to have to conclude and we're going to stop and pause to see if there are any thoughts out there. We want to give you an opportunity to respond or whatever's on your mind. And uh, the floor is open. Well, I just want to make sure we, we still, the line so, is still there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm here. Okay. So, we, I'm trying to 
get a grasp on Israel as far as um, faith through works. Um, we, we never used the term that Israel um, worked for their salvation or, or we talked about Israel doing you know, salvation by works. Uh, but it seemed like you brought something like that out today. Yeah, Israel did work for their salvation, although it wasn't termed the same way in the Old Testament. It was um, really uh, made clear in the New Testament. Well, wh what were they doing? Right? They were supposed to go out to be the priest nation of the world, right? Through, all, through them, all the nations in the world will be blessed. You know, in some way. In some way, that's already happened, even in spite of their disobedience. How did that happen? That Christ came through Israel. He's the Savior of the world. And yes, they delivered. He did come through Israel. Now, it wasn't really based on them, but it was based through them. Now, the problem that we were talking about with the salvation is because Israel replaced spiritual dynamic of grace and and you know substitutionary sacrifice which they were illustrating through animal sacrifices they replaced that with their obedience to the law now they never their obedience to the law did not entail that they go out and be that light to the gentiles that we we read in the old testament it did not it caused them to be exclusive and separatist toward the world. They did not want to associate with the Gentiles at all. And we illustrated that with the story of Jonah. So salvation was to them what we might call justification. So justification, they thought, was theirs because they had the law and their attempts at keeping the law. They compared themselves to Gentiles, and they said, oh, well, the Gentiles don't even have the law. So we're light years ahead of them in terms of God accepting us, because we have the law, and we're working on keeping it. We may not be perfect, but, but we're justified before God because we keep the law. So it just made them more proud and arrogant instead of, missionary-minded and grace-oriented. So all of that played out in the New Testament when Jesus came. You know we read uh, Isaiah 28 where, where it prophesies about Jesus, about I will make righteousness the plumb line and all that. I remember years ago I said, Bill, what's a plumb line? Do you remember that? No, but I'm sure I explained it to you. You you don't remember well, you know, that? There's a spiritual there's a spiritual plumb line. Yeah, yeah. So Bible talks about the plumb line. But you know what a plumb, plumb line, line is in in carpentry, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a string that we we measure things by to keep things straight. It keeps it straight, right? But you measure by that plumb line. If it's not according to that, then you're going to be off, right? So correct. So make righteousness the plumb line. And, and that, we know, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they will fall off 
and if they you know when it comes to righteousness it comes through the son you can't have righteousness through the law but anyway that that was how israel failed it was because they refused and that was not all of israel and it's never all of israel there's always a remnant in israel but the, the majority and the leadership are those who uh, grossly failed I mean, if you think about the stoning of Stephen in the first century, that's what he said. So, so yes, works. There, and Paul said it. He 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 clearly laid this out for Israel. Are we any better? Not at all. This is in Romans three, right? What he what is he going to conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. But then in nineteen he says. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So the Jews didn't believe that. They thought because they had the law, they were declared righteous. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. No one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So, why was he saying that? The Gentiles didn't even have the law. It's because of the Jews thinking that they could be justified by the law and not have to take the grace solution. I'll pause, Bill. Okay, I got you. Yeah. So like you said, they just turn it. We didn't quite turn it as the way we turn today, salvation by work, but... Um, their arrogance is what you're qualifying as salvation by works. Well, it's their attitude that, you know, keeping God's law, which it was God's law, it was. But they thought that keeping God's law would bring them justification before God. God said, no, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. Just like in verse 9, Paul says, what should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. But we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. The Jews did not believe that. They did not. They thought they had an advantage. They thought they had favor with God. But church, a lot of churches today have gone to the same error. Instead of the grace solution, right? The salvation by grace is free, and right, telling people that. It's not of their works, not of the. Well, they are trying to get people to do Christian things, what they consider, quote, Christian things, unquote. And by doing those Christian things, they are somehow saved. And if they don't do those Christian things, they are not saved. Right? So you, you have ambivalence floating around in the church with these thoughts. People, you ask somebody if they're saved, they're like, well, I don't know. I might be. I'm working on it. Uh, I used to be, but not anymore. You hear all these answers like, what? what is that to say? That means they don't understand salvation. They don't understand what the issues of salvation are. So it's the same thing Israel did. They replaced the fact that they could get favor with God with the law and their obedience. 
that's what gained them favor. They thought that anyway, but they were wrong. Everybody has to come through the door of salvation. No exceptions. However, it's free. It doesn't cost anything, but in their arrogance, they reject it. Hopefully that helps. Other thoughts? All right. So we are going to conclude and we'll save you a few minutes. So we're going to close with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. We're so thankful for what you have done. And Father, we're, thank you. we're thanking you also for how clear it is stated in your word. And we pray for each person listening under the sound of my voice that they will understand, they will see the thoughts that you have displayed here in these, these chapters and verses about us, who we are in Christ. We thank you, Father, and we pray for wisdom as we continue to live in this world where it is dark, but there are people who need to hear the good news. So thank you for putting that on our lips and giving us that responsibility. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.